You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by the letter F. We recap the 2023 Pan-Continental Championships and we have a conversation with the unknown curling fan. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me this week. Once again, my name is Frank Rock. My first guest this week is Olympian Hans Fraunlob, a regular contributor to the podcast over the past several seasons, who returns to recap an eventful 2023 Pan-Continental Championship in Kelowna. Hans, I thought we'd start our recap of the 2023 Pan-Continental Championships on the women's side. For those who couldn't follow the event's results, Korea's Team Gim won the championship for their country. Is it fair to say, Hans, that this is a very underrated team that found a new gear when Kim Min-ji was added to the lineup? Yeah, well, I think you nailed it, Frank. I think the addition of Kim Min-ji has been the catalyst for this team to kind of go right into the top ranks, not just in Korea, but worldwide. Um, Ninji was at the top of the shooting percentages for thirds right through the tournament in, in Kelowna and, uh, you know, a very, very good player. It wasn't all her, but uh, the addition of her into that foursome has really made that team really, really strong. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see what they can do at Worlds. Uh, you know, Korean curling just keeps producing depth and talent, and it's a very, very good team. The Pan-Continental Championship in Kelowna turned into another frustrating event for Team Anderson, who have struggled to find the top of the podium with the Maple Leaf on their backs. Team Anderson is obviously one of the top teams in the world, Hans, and they certainly can win any event they enter with the Maple Leaf on their back. You cover most of the World Curling Federation events. Uh, have you been able to put your finger on why Team Anderson continues to struggle to find their best form at international events? Yeah, it's it's really hard to put your finger on. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, Kevin Martin had this rap that, okay, you know, he'd win Canadian championships and then he'd go to an international or an Olympics and wouldn't win and people were questioning that and then he breaks through and wins gold medals. So, you know, so to to win, you got to basically be in a position to win and Carrie and her team are always in a position to win. Um, and it's really just showing up and it is, you know, self-belief. Um, a little bit, you know, it can become a bit self-fulfilling when you think, okay, well, it's just not going to happen for us. I don't think that Kerry Anderson and that team feel that way, but, um, you know, he does have to keep showing up and, uh, and, and playing as well as you can. And, you know, and reminding ourselves, not that we should need reminding that, you know, when you're stepping up and playing against a, a top ranked international field, not, you know, no aspersions on other Canadian teams at a Scotty's, but, you know, these are very talented teams that you're playing. So, you know, the days of expecting somebody with a maple leaf on their back to walk into an international tournament and have a cakewalk, those are gone. So um, and it's going to be a battle every time out. I'm sure every Canadian team would tell you that now when they're representing Canada in any international tournament, and it'll come. I mean, if they uh, continue to succeed at the Canadian level and represent Canada at international tournaments, um, they'll break through. 
In a development that I'm sure you were happy about, Tons, Jessica Smith and the team representing New Zealand earned their second consecutive trip to the Women's Worlds. That said, Hans, there continues to be a gap between the top four nations, Korea, Japan, Canada, and the United States, and the other countries in the region. In fact, New Zealand qualified for the World Championships by going 2-5 and five in Kelowna. Are we getting any closer to a point, Hans, where New Zealand, Australia, or another country might be in a position to challenge for a playoff spot against the top four? Yeah, I, th- I think it is coming, and I think the, the gap is more pronounced, I think, on the women's side than on the men's side. If you look at the men's side, which I know we'll come to in a moment, um, teams like New Zealand beat Korea in round robins, and so much more competitive. There isn't that gulf, and it really boils down to um, – investing the time and the effort in training and competition. And um, so nations that are aspiring to compete uh, with those teams at the top level, uh, you can't just kind of show up and hope. You really do have to invest in the preparation, um, the training. Um, That can mean, you know, big dislocation because in a lot of these countries, there isn't a lot of domestic competition. So you got to travel, you got to relocate. But really, that's what it takes. So, you know, I think it is plausible. And, um, you know, I think the gap is narrowing, but their gap is still very much there on the women's side. Let's move on to the men's event at the Pan-Continental Championship, Sahans, where Team Gushu of Canada defended their title in Kelowna. The Newfoundland team made noise on the ice in Kelowna, and their skip, Brad Gushu, made noise off the ice by openly criticizing the decision to host the event at a curling club instead of an arena. What did you make of that whole situation? Yeah, it's, you know, as an athlete and a former athlete myself, of course you want, you know, the best uh, uh, playing conditions you can get and the best arenas and all those kinds of things. Um, from an organizational sense, um, it's a logistical one and a financial one. So, you know, we need a lot of money to book out an arena for a couple of weeks. And in the case of the Pan Continentals and the European Championships, uh, you're currently running A division and B division concurrently. So not only do you need an arena, you actually need two of them. And so um, so it's not an inexpensive proposition, especially when you've got an event that isn't really generating, you know, fan attendance or... Uh, significant broadcast revenue. So it's really difficult. Um, so that's kind of there as a qualifier. So you got to hold the events. Um, and, you know, the primary job of the events is making sure that you're in a place where uh, the playing conditions are going to be excellent and uh, it's going to be a fair competition. Um, you know, it's a relatively recent thing that the regional qualifiers, at least in the Pacific Asia zone, have been played in arenas. You know, that's... Uh, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, they were usually in curling ranks. So um, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. Obviously better if it's an affordable thing. If you could have it in an arena competition, have the event be well-promoted, well-broadcasted, all those types of things, you know, that takes money. And and so um, I think one of the things that will be looked at, and certainly something I'm, I'm involved in the uh, Competition and Rules Committee on the World Curling Federation and one of the things that we look at in the lead up to the next Olympic cycle is not only world's playing format, but the qualification formats to get there. Um, it doesn't mean scrap it and rethink it, but uh, you know, I think we want to look at things like, you know, event frequency. We want to look at ladder systems and reevaluate some of these things. Even if you change those things though, Frank, you know, it's still down to the economics of having a, host venue put their hand up and say we're ready to invest in hosting this event and incurring the not insignificant cost of 
hiring out an arena, addressing it for the week um, to host these events. These are not inexpensive undertakings. And so I know that the World Curling Federation is um, thinking hard about how to make everything sustainable, not just financially sustainable, but environmentally sustainable. So um, I think that they've got license now to kind of rethink everything, you know, in terms of how teams get to worlds, um, how worlds are run, um, and try to make it better for everybody, including the athletes. The bronze medalist in the men's event was Japan, represented by team Yanagisawa, who found themselves at the center of a social media firestorm earlier this season through no fault of their own when a grainy video taken at an event appeared to show one of their players guiding a rock with his broom. As it turned out, it was much ado about nothing, but you know these players very well, Hans, and I and I was wondering if you think the whole situation impacted them more than we may have realized as a larger curling community. Outside the specific... Um situation you know i think it is just kind of evidence around kind of our world today and how any comment that anybody makes in social media can be turned into a firestorm and an instant hot take and 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 an overreaction and you know this is absolutely a case of that so um you know this team and uh, these players are among the most um uh, sporting spirit um respectful of the game um people i could think of and so I'm sure they were as shocked as anybody to kind of get those kinds of accusations that they got. Um, so, you know, it's kind of an indictment on our, on all of us really um, as people that just kind of see a clip on social media and kind of instantly react and all of a sudden hurl accusations. I just hope that as human beings um, we would take breath a little bit more often and um, not just not react instantly uh, to every little thing that happens. Moving on to Team New Zealand on the men's side, it had to be a satisfying week for Anton Hood and his team, Hans, not only qualifying for the World Championships, but also defeating a very good Korean team along the way in the round robin. For those who may not have heard about Team Hood, they actually decided to move from New Zealand to Canada to curl this season. So I guess my question to you, Hans, is what is this first season in Canada all about for Team Hood? Is it about adjusting to the lifestyle change during their first year in Canada, or did they also have some curling objectives to meet this season as well? Yeah, well, I think they they probably already achieved their goals for this year, Frank. And their eyes are very firmly on 2026. And uh, they aspire to qualify New Zealand into the Winter Olympics. And they believed, and I agree, that they, uh, the best way to achieve that is to compete more. And so... Um, I've got nothing but admiration for all four of the team, as well as, you know, Peter DeBoer, the coach that's working with them. Um, they are absolutely committed to doing everything they can um, within the bounds of their ability and their finances to be better. And so, you know, I think competing this year, you know, this is almost like a settling in year for them. They were expecting to play more, play a lot, um, get beaten up, um, learn, get better, but primary goal this year, qualify for Worlds, uh, which they've done. So, um, And they are, as you mentioned, beating good teams along the way. Um, you know, they had, I think, you know, quite a good performance for first Worlds back in Ottawa. Um, uh, they, they gave Brad Gushu a bit of a scare at that game. They played the Canadians. So they're going to be trying to keep, walk up that steady incline of improvement. You know, this, this year a bit better than last year next year a bit better than this year and put themselves in the frame. And so they're doing exactly the kinds of things that a 
I mentioned when we were talking about the women's event, and that's kind of what it takes. Um, you have to invest in um, working as a unit, working hard to get better, taking some lumps along the way to get better. And they're, you know, so far everything that they've backed themselves to do, I think is, um, is working for them so far. Of course, Team Hood has received a lot of attention in the Canadian media since moving to Canada, especially when they settle into a senior's home, despite being a few decades younger than the remainder of the residents in that building. Did this story uh, grab the uh, attention of the New Zealand media as well, Hans? Like, uh, yeah, I know it's gotten a lot of attention in Canada. There was an article in the New York Times, etc. So I'm just wondering if uh, the story gained a little bit of traction in New Zealand, where, of course, curling is not as mainstream a sport as it is here in Canada. Oh, totally it has. And uh, it's funny, it's a bit like Canada. You know, like when Canadians get noticed somewhere else, then they get noticed at home. And that's certainly been the case with, with Anton's team. And, you know, the minute that uh, the New York Times did a story on them, um, then that became news here. <laughs> so, you know, now it's like, Anton, these young men, you know, they're going to be forever known as kind of the retirement home team. Um, but I think that's great. You know, they've now got... Uh, uh, a fantastic feel-good association with them that's going to have them remembered for something else other than just being really good curlers, which they are. So, yeah, they have definitely uh, hit the radar here at home, and uh, folks are really pleased. I think everybody in the world is pleased. It's it's one of the great curling stories of, you know, curling community reaching out and stuff happening, and uh, it's it's fun to watch. Finally, Hans, you've done a lot of work as a broadcaster for the World Curling Federation, so I thought I'd ask you about another controversy from this year's Penn Continental event in Kelowna, and that was the fact that the event was removed from regular cable a few days into the round robin and moved to online streaming. Can you take me into what goes into that kind of decision and who ultimately has the final say? Yeah, well, I'll answer the last question first in terms of who makes that decision. That's absolutely in the hands of the rights holder, in this case, TSN. So TSN um, buys the the rights to broadcast uh, the event from um, the World Curling Federation. They um, take any host feeds or anything that's produced by the World Curling Federation, and that's up to them what they do with it and where they show it and how often they show it. So those on-air decisions are entirely in the hands of the rights holders once they buy the rights. Um, in terms of what might have driven their decision, well, that's probably more a question for TSN than me, um, but there's no doubt that um, World Curling Federation and World Curling TV uh, was trying some new things out in terms of production. Um, again, like the cost of arenas, it costs a ferocious amount of money to stage and uh, broadcast a curling event and um, it's not just the commentators it's the rigging it's the production truck it's the, the sound it's everything so you know it can be you know, many many hundreds of thousands of dollars just to broadcast a um you know the highest quality um, event so uh, world curling was trying some things to uh, try and defray some costs whether that was something that drove TSN's decision, I can't speak for TSN. Um, but, you know, it's down to the rights holder. If you buy the rights and you decide not to show it, hey, that's okay. That's your decision. If you buy the rights and you decide to show it every game that you got, fine. You know, lots of right hold, rights holders will buy rights and only show games involving their teams. But they've got the rights to show every team in the every game in the event if they want to, but they choose not to. So it's always the decision of the rights holder buying the rights in terms of what they show and when and uh, how they show it. 
For those of you wondering why this episode is brought to you by the letter F, well, my first guest was Hans Franlob, and my next guest is Mike Fournier. See what I did there? Both our last names start with F. Mike joined me to discuss his recent blog written for the Curling News, where his unknown curling fan alter ego made an appearance to share some thoughts on the current state of the sport. Mike, you recently wrote a blog for the Curling News that resonated with many curling fans, a blog where you discussed several topics that are certainly not new that I thought deserved more conversation. So thanks for joining me this week to do this. I want to start by touching on a couple of points you made about the Grand Slam of Curling, which remain the most important events on the schedules of every elite team in the world outside of events where they are representing their country or, in the case of Canadian teams, representing their province. Now, there is no doubt that the slams are well-run events and the players love them. However, you refer to them as being boring, and I have heard several other people refer to them as being stale at this point in the revolution. What would you do to try and re-energize the slams, at least from a fan interest perspective, Mike? (laughs) Well, that's a big question, and I'm sure a lot of people are asking themselves that question. Um, you know, I, and I, I'm definitely not an insider in terms of understanding the, the financial viability or the, you know, the business model that is the slams today. But I mean, speaking from, a, you know, a, a lover of curling and a lover of good curling, I, I don't find myself particularly interested in, in turning on a slam and watching. And, and it's not that I don't like or respect the teams that are there or anything like that. I, I don't want it to sound like the teams are, are born, but... You got to look at it. There's, I mean, how many slams are there a year now? I don't even know. Is it six, five, six? I, I think they're, I think they're down to five now. They had six and they got rid of. Yeah, no, the, they were up to seven and then they came back down, right? I think you know, and uh, increasingly they very much all feel the same. Um, you know, I, I think the one thing that's changing in them is probably the makeup of teams is becoming a bit more international, just because the, uh, I will say, the point system is kind of. Uh, uh, you know, leans towards, uh, you know, it gives some uh, some favorable advantage to some of the European teams who get to play all year and play a lot in August and play a lot in September and rack up points. So you, you see the teams you see breaking in now tend to be teams that are full-time curlers who'll devote their time to getting a ton of points early and breaking into the, the bottom of the slams. You see the Canadian teams falling out of it. Uh, I think there was only, what, five teams in the last slam? from canada yeah five or six yeah maybe five or six uh you know so it's and it's it's not a trend that's going to go up it's harder and harder to to keep up with the international teams that are doing uh the level of travel and schedule that uh you know there's somebody with a day job can't possibly do so it's uh that's that's the way of curling right so so now you have kind of pretty much olympic teams playing each other for a bit of money you know, in small towns in Canada with relatively small crowds. And that's not true in some towns. I realize they do get a couple of thousand people in some of the smaller towns. But, you know, in general, small towns and and events that are completely, you know, for somebody watching on TV, you can't tell the difference really between Pictou Nova Scotia and Saskatoon, right? I mean, it's still a curling rink with camera on it. Uh, a lot of empty fans. I won't say there's a ton of atmosphere in the buildings generally. Um, you know, I think people who are there might argue, but for the most part, it's, you know, it, it, when you compare it to the events that you see, like the Briar or, or anything where there's a, a crowd cheering and the pressure and you can see the, the, the angst and the pressure on people's faces as they're curling, when you see the emotion coming out, the slams just aren't able to generate that anymore. 
you know i mean there are moments i mean there have been moments in the last few years where you see a great slam where you see somebody who really you know like when when matt dunstone won his first one i mean it was a big emotional moment i think a lot of people enjoyed that but i find it's just they're getting fewer and further between now in terms of the moments where you know and you know i i i i have a ton of respect for like the italian guys you know but i i just i don't know watching joel return as win a a, a slam just didn't do it for me <laughs> you know and, and i don't know that maybe that's just uh me as a curling purist but i i was like okay i guess they're the best now and but i i'm just i don't know i, I just find it hard to to keep up and be uh entertained with it it's also becoming increasingly difficult for teams to break into the slams to begin with now, Mike. I remember Brad Jacobs once telling me in an interview that he had little to no sympathy for young teams not being able to qualify for the slams because he'd spent over a decade going to tour events all over Ontario and other parts of Canada to play in as many events as possible and learning from all the losses before ever qualifying for a slam. However, in an age where most sponsorship and purse money is focused on the slams, it's increasingly difficult for other teams in the country to even justify the expense of traveling to several events per season, limiting their opportunities to earn points and move up the rankings and learn from all those losses against some of the top teams in the country. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's the challenge, right? And it's, the economics is what drives, I think, the uh, the challenge that we're seeing in Canada as well as is, you know, people talk about what's the next gen look like and how do you get the the next generation of curlers, like what's going to be the generation that that will challenge for, for the Olympics, that will develop the sport and grow the sport in Canada. And uh, it, it's certainly not getting easier. <laughs> you know, it, it's definitely getting harder for them. Like I, it's funny, I'm, I'm in Halifax this week and I'm curling in a spiel and, you know, we played a, uh, a really crazy strong U25 team yesterday, right? A, uh, we played uh, Jaden King out of Ontario, a really solid curling team. You know, and I, I look at guys like that and I say, what's the steps that they would need to take? Like, let's say I was coaching them or advising them or whatever. What's the steps that you guys would need to take to get to like the slams to get into the next level? You know, and you basically have to say, well, first, I, you know, you can't really work. You know, try to find a job that you can either do remotely or, you know, because, you know, you're in your early 20s. You, you also are living and need to, you know, make some money and, and pay your rent somewhere. Like nobody's offering to pay you a salary to curl in Canada, right? So, and there's probably not a lot of sponsorship to play because, the you know, the viewership numbers don't warrant teams getting hundred dollars and $200,000 sponsorships unless they're the teams that are on the tv every single time you know so for them how would you do it you know so you'd say okay well travel from spiel to spiel to get anywhere near the slams i think you'd probably have to do a 15 to 20 week schedule you know where you were every week for 15 to 20 weeks trying to rack up the points and even then it's tough like even then i don't know like you you would take you a good year of doing that with absolutely no financial return to get anywhere near that 15th spot in the world to get into a slam. So, you know, I, I mean, your point earlier, I think, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, like a Brad Jacobs or something who, who, who did this, you know, maybe probably 10 years ago. I don't even know if it's, it's doable today, you know, because at least back then you were competing against Canadian teams doing the same thing, but now you're competing against a bunch of global teams that are, funded by their governments to come over to Canada and do the same thing to try to get to the slams, to develop, to become Olympic medal worthy. So it's, uh, 
it, it's kind of a, a a tricky situation for the slams and you know the the idea that i did float in that blog was was you know is there a reason we're holding the slams at 15 teams like i understand the you know the the viability of running the events and and ice times and draws but you know if you go back to when we were, were growing and developing curling in canada we were, were the biggest spiels were always 32 64 teams you know which which gave everybody you know that chance to play that chance to play against the good teams the chance to practice the chance to prove yourself i mean maybe that's part of the answer for the slams i guess is, is try to get bigger versus more of a, you know, I've called the slams in the past sort of a traveling theater group, right? I mean, it's kind of the same actors that go from town to town and put on their play, you know. It, it's not, it's less of an event. I discussed the idea of larger fields with someone close to the slams a few years ago, and the way it was explained to me, Mike, at the time anyways, is that there are some venue considerations as well as the idea that limited fields allow the same teams to be on TV more often, allowing viewers to become more familiar with the teams and more likely to watch the next time those teams were on TV. Yeah, and I get that. You know, I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, and you, you, I think the reality is, though, you run a team, you run events with more teams, you're still going to see that same set of teams around the finals of the event. Right. I mean, you know, I, I mean, you know, Wimbledon has, uh, you know, the top 64 tennis players in the world, but usually you know who the final four are going to be. But when it's not the final four that you expect, you, you tend to watch because you go, wow, who's this guy? I've never seen him before. I've never seen her before. Wow. Interesting to see them in the finals. You know, wow. I, I what a, what an underdog story. What a Disney movie, you know? Um, you know, I think curling needs a little bit more of that, a little bit less of the same guy week in, week out. I mean, they're running, like I said, five of these a year, you know, I mean, does it always have to be the same teams in all of them? Mike, moving on to another point you raised in your blog last week, you wrote that you feel women's curling is more interesting to watch than men's curling. Now, I, I could certainly put you on the spot and ask you to elaborate on that. Still, I'd rather discuss the more significant concern that curling might be a less exciting spectator sport than just a few years ago. I talked with Ryan Fry on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, Mike, and Ryan said that sweeping is becoming an even bigger difference maker at the elite level with some teams reaching the point where their sweepers can deliver a rock right to the spot as long as it's thrown relatively well and close to the broom. Have we gotten to the point where one of the byproducts of having teams that can place rocks exactly where they want them more often than not is taking some of the excitement out of the game? Yeah, I don't know about that. I, I mean, and like I've, I've had a the good fortune this year to play against a couple of the best teams in the world. Right. And, uh, you know, we played a game against Ross white, who I think is one of the, you know, they're one of the big Scottish teams. They're obviously, you know, at that level of sweeping and, and rock moving. And, uh, you know, games aren't necessarily boring because teams make a lot of shots. Like part of it is just the style of, of the teams that play now, like where, you know, they're, they're so good at, at the hitting and the runbacks which is less even the sweeping and just how good they are. But, you know, I, I you know, you're watching, uh, you know, the big teams play now and, and, you know, the ends very often look the same where it's okay. Draw freeze, freeze, freeze. Okay. I don't like the way it looks. I'm going to run the guard back and blow everything up. And then everything's out of play. And then all of a sudden it becomes like a boring end, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it, it's amazingly consistent. And then you see a lot of like, 
31 games. And there's just not that many teams in the world that can quite frankly do that. Um, you know, obviously Botcher is one, uh, you know, Gushu probably a bit is one, but I mean, when these teams are trying to be offensive and try and actually go for it, they're, they're so much fun to watch because they try all kinds of different shots. And I, I don't think the sweeping necessarily takes away from it, shot making. Uh, but I'd say just from a style perspective, it's almost where the, the game, it's almost that they're too good because of that. I, I part of me thinks to, I, I, it's funny. I make this joke. I, I think, I think the TV, they, they like the rocks that are really bouncy and they like the rocks that are easy to blow up and that explode out of the house. I, I think they're the worst things for the game because I think they make it too easy to make ridiculous runbacks and triples and blow up all the guards. I want rocks in play. And as soon as you touch like the, the, the curling Canada rocks, as soon as they touch each other, one of them leaves the house. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, and the sports and the, you know, the slam rocks are the same thing. And I understand why they do that. And it makes for better TV and it makes for triples, but it also makes it very easy to, to double peel and run back rocks and have them all leave the house, you know? So it, maybe that's one of the directions the game's taken that I, I don't think helps from a viewership standpoint. I mean, it helps from a highlight of the night standpoint, but in terms of making the games more interesting, it really doesn't, you know, it ends up having a lot of rocks leave the house early. Yeah. It, it's, um, you know, it, it's it's interesting. A lot of the things I think that we thought would be good for the game haven't been as good for the game. You know, and I think maybe that's part of it. And because I, I don't, you know, with the the blog and just like you make the point of all the things that kind of come together, I don't think there anybody sets out with the intention of making things worse. You know, and and I really don't believe that. I do believe in the the inherent goodness that most of the people in curling want curling to be better. But it's tricky to say, how do you grow the game, you know, in a dynamic where you're trying to grow it internationally, you know, you're trying to grow it for a TV audience, you're trying to, you know, and thinking that anybody has the right answer. I think what the last few years have showed us is that maybe that's not the case, you know, and that it is complicated to grow a sport like this and, you know, does require some thought, some questioning and some discussion. Mike, you and I are just about the same age, and we remember the days back in the 80s and 90s when it seemed like younger players often received opportunities to join Team Skip by experienced players and learn from them. Now, fast forward a couple of decades into the Olympic era, and it seems that the vast majority of new teams created at the end of an Olympic cycle consists mostly of old faces in new places with few opportunities for younger next-generation players. Now, in your blog, you wrote that you would like to see more established veterans do what Jen Jones and Kevin Cooey have done to start this cycle, which is pair up with next-generation players and help them transition from successful juniors to top men's and women's players. Is there a pathway, Mike, in the current Canadian curling landscape for young next-generation curlers to make their way into the slams and compete at the elite level so that they can get noticed by some of the more experienced players on tour and hopefully get them on some of these elite teams leading the way to more briar appearances and hopefully for them an appearance at the Olympics down the road? Uh, I mean, I, I think you do have some people doing it, right? I mean, like Dunstone is the exception, right? Uh, Tardy. You know, Horgan, there there are kids coming out of, I say kids, but there are people coming out of juniors that are still sticking with the game and playing. I, I think the challenge is just the, you know, the barriers to entry are so aggressive now, you know, and, you know, I, I think they've tried to solve it with this, this notion of creating a U25 kind of program in Canada, which I, I don't know what that really gets you. I mean, other than have the U25 teams play with each other, but you know, I, I think there is value to more teams doing this, but you're right. It is harder to, to take a chance with a new team now. 
right? To take a chance with somebody who doesn't have any points when they come onto your team, you know, because, you know, unless you're, you're Cooley or Jennifer Jones, like nobody has enough points to make sure that they're staying in the slams if they break their team up and, and bring in a bunch of kids who don't have a ton of points, you know, so it, it becomes a challenge for a team that's in that U25 age range to try to, to, to break through into that, you know, how do you, how do you move up? Like, like what's your incentive if you're between the age of 20 and 25 to, to stick with the game, you know, you know, say, I, I mean, the fact that people do it suggests that it still can't be done. I mean, Christ, I used to play with uh, a guy named Felix Asling, right. Who came out of juniors and is now, you know, curling some serious at, at a, you know, a, a, one of the top teams, you know, in the country kind of level. But um it's uh, it, it's a challenge to get enough people there that want to stick with it, you know, and and to like I said that the financial challenge of just starting out and playing at that level and playing enough to break through into the next level, you know, yeah, I mean, why well, even take that example? I just Felix Asselin, right? I mean, as much as he curls, as much as he plays, as much as he devotes his life to curling, uh, they're not getting invited to a slam anytime soon. You know, they're, they're, they're still far enough away from that level where they can't get the points. They can't get the, the time they would need to invest in it to get the points. So they're always going to end up being a tier two team. Uh, you know, so it's, it's such a challenge for people to break in. And that's where I see the development challenge uh, that the slams have created. You know, it's really an exclusive club of, of a handful of Canadian teams and international teams that now play in that so we it, it's hurt the growth of the game in Canada I just want to circle back to the slams for a moment Mike and touch on something I mentioned briefly a little bit earlier one of the unintended consequences of the slams when it comes to younger players looking to work their way up to the slam level is that it's becoming increasingly rare for those young players to be able to measure themselves against and learn from the top teams at regular tour events most of the top teams now schedule the slams the points bet invitational and perhaps two or three regular tour events during the season such as penticton and the shorty jenkins and a small handful of other events yeah exactly i mean uh, you just won't see the top teams anymore i mean they do travel they play some sp- i i mean um, they play tournaments outside i mean you'll see you know I, I, like they all come and play the shorty jenkins they all come and play uh you know, Pittington, you mentioned, you know, it, they'll be at a few other spiels and you'll get uh, you'll get them here and there. But you're right. It's getting harder and harder to get the exposure to the top teams. And finally, Mike, you brought up streaming in your blog the other day and how it seems like every game from every event on tour is being streamed at this point. Now, I understand that streaming is the future of sports and that someday soon we will all be streaming sports instead of watching them on linear television. My concern is that by the time the core curling audience transitions to streaming services, the companies putting so much time, effort and money into streaming curling events at this point will have grown tired of spending all that money for a limited return on investment and the sport of curling will be left scrambling to find streaming services to cover the action at an affordable cost i kind of wrote a tongue-in-cheek just saying you know streaming has grown so much seemingly in the last few years and seems to be the new platform of choice uh and, and it's funny i wrote this and i was sitting next to john epping yesterday at the club and he gave me shit for this because he said mike he said what's wrong with streaming he says my mom and dad like to watch my game streamed come on you know don't, don't be dumping on streaming um but uh it, it's yeah i think it's just what i say like i, I think some stream, uh, streaming is good you know like it's it's good that we can show events now it's good that uh and, and i'm amazed that sometimes you do get audiences i i was uh i was amazed like i played uh glenn howard in ontario provincials last year 
in what was a pretty good curling game, actually. And uh, I was looking the other day on YouTube. I just pulled the game up, and I was amazed at the number of views that game had. You know, it was something like 10,000, I think, or something. I was like, oh, really? 10,000 people watch that game? Um, you know, it, it, to your, but to your point, I think there's so many games on. There's so much streamed. There's so much of a, uh, you know, effort required to do this, too. And then when you see the numbers... You know, I, I was struck by this yesterday. I was at the Halifax uh, Curling Club, and they're streaming a lot of games from this. And just the the quality of the production, the equipment, the you know, the whole setup that they have to stream the games with commentators, it, it's it's a big deal. You know, this isn't just a a, a, a podunk kind of uh, a streaming service. Like this is wow. Okay, they actually have some production quality in this and everything. So it, it's interesting to see the effort that goes into it, and then. Like to your point, you look at the numbers on some of the games, and I'm sure it's it's. I mean, if a hundred people were watching yesterday afternoon, I'd be surprised, you know, because I think I was watching one of the games like between, and it those were the kind of numbers you were seeing. So it's uh, it, it's a challenge to see. I mean, I know people talk about sponsors and exposure, but I, I can't believe sponsors are really that excited about having you know 67 curling fans who are mostly friends and family watching my curling games. You know, I mean, I I don't know if that's really going to help break through anything or really give the game a lot. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling on this one because I, I, I'm not sure what the right answer is. I, I just feel like we've now gone to the point where it's like, well, we need to stream every game and everything needs to be streamed and everybody's got to, if it's not streamed, people complain and then they'll set up their phones and their webcams and they're, you know, streaming the games to, to their friends and family. But, it, it, and I, I get it. I mean, I, I think it, it, gives people a chance who aren't there to share in it and to, you know, to be part of it. But it, it uh, I, I don't know if it's necessarily the future for the game or how the game's going to grow. Now, the good news is that with curling striving to attract a younger audience, they are much more likely to do so on streaming platforms than on linear television. That does it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to Hans Fraunlob and Mike Forney for joining me this week. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network. The Two Girls in the Game Podcast, the Rock Logic Podcast, and the Curling Legends Podcast. All right, time for me to get the F out of here. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.